Welcome to Broken Law, brought to you by the American Constitution Society, a 501c3 nonprofit, nonpartisan organization. I'm Jeannie Hereska, Senior Advisor for Communications and Strategy at ACS. Earlier this year, on episode 101 to be exact, we discussed the rise of AI chatbots like ChatGPT and how equipped or unequipped the law is to handle AI. We're building on that episode today with a discussion on the use of AI for worker surveillance. How can we and should we regulate the use of AI from hiring to employee wellness programs to turning workers into robots? I am honored to be joined for this conversation by Dr. Ifoma Ajunwa, AI Humanity Professor of Law and Ethics at Emory Law and Founding Director of the AI and the Law Program at Emory. She's also Faculty Associate at the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard University and Fellow at Yale Law ISP. She is also the author of the new book, The Quantified Worker, Law and Technology in the Modern Workplace, which is on our ACS Book Club summer reading list. Professor Ajunwa, welcome to Broken Law. Thank you very much. It is exciting to have this conversation. Um, As I noted when we started, I'm equally terrified and excited, (laughs) which is how I always feel when I discuss artificial intelligence. Yeah, I I mean, I I certainly understand that uh, sentiment. Um, I try not to be too alarmist in the book, uh, but I do certainly think that some of the developments we're seeing in the business workplace is cause for legal concern and um, that we should take note and we should take action uh, to ensure that business practices involving AI continue to work for the greater good of workers and society at large. I'm really excited about the book and to raise awareness of it. And I hope more folks will check it out after this episode. The book is called The Quantified Worker, which is a term that you use to refer to the power dynamic between workers and companies. Talk to me about that dynamic. What I'm really describing in the book is something that I believe is a new development, a new iteration of how workers are being treated in the workplace. So, you know, to be clear, worker quantification is not new. Um, For as long as we've had workers, um, you know, starting from the Roman Empire, quantifying how much food was given to uh, soldiers and, you know, exactly how many hours of exercise they got, etc. We have had the quantification of workers. But what we do have now is the advent of AI technologies that allow for the quantification of workers in a manner and to a degree that is to date unforeseen in history. So this is new in that we now have technologies that can take water quantification to a more minute, perpetual, and um, pervasive level for workers. You have some great historical examples, uh, including talking about the Pinkertons. Can you give us that snippet from history? Right. So, you know, the, the Pinkertons actually represent um, one of the first, quote unquote, um, law enforcement forces that you see in the U.S. So previously, the U.S., many, many states did not actually have a police force. So the Pinkerton detectives actually arose as a private police force. Um, so they were sort of like police for hire. And they um, lease themselves out to mostly corporations and sometimes to uh, municipalities, you know, governmental bodies until they were actually effectively banned 
Um, you know, there were several court cases and a congressional hearing that led to government agencies being banned from ever using the Pinkerton detectives, but they actually still exist and can be used by private agencies. Um, so the Pinkertons were very instrumental in developing the idea of worker surveillance and also union busting. So that was primarily how they were used. Whenever there was a, a factory or a warehouse where there was some union activity going on, um, a lot of those employers would deploy the Pinkerton detectives to trail the union organizers, to create um, misinformation, to instigate violence that would then essentially bust the union. It feels eerily similar to what we're seeing across the country now, whether it's Amazon or Starbucks. Again, like more technologically enhanced union busting, but it's the same idea. It's the same idea, but what you see now is the use of um, technologies coming into play. So with more modern examples, you see social media being deployed for union busting. So, you know, for example, Walmart has been accused of spying on union organizers through Facebook, uh, through Twitter. Um, the same for Amazon also. They've been accused of um, essentially trailing uh, union organizers through workplace uh, surveillance technologies that are try to pinpoint who is meeting with whom in the workplace. So you do now see AI technologies being deployed in the service of worker surveillance rather than actual human detectives. Yeah, and as you know, even in terms of actual worker surveillance, the concept of employers wanting information about their workers is a long tried and true one, right? You want to be able to measure what, how much can your workers do? Are they working as hard as they should? And so you can think of punch cards, video cameras, You know, now we're into things like email monitoring and and even mouse movement detection, which is just creepy to me. But I want to start before we get into surveilling hired workers. You talk a lot about AI in the hiring process. Right, right. And how more and more companies are using AI, not for hiring, but for rejecting. Right. So, you know. This actually came out of research that I conducted with a co-author prior to writing the book. Uh, my co-author was Daniel Green, um, who is at University of Maryland. And what we did was we looked at the evolution of automated hiring systems. So we looked at their inception, like what was the impetus behind them being e- developed and then how were they marketed? How And then how did they develop over the decades since the 1990s when they really took off? And what we saw was that the impetus of automated hiring was really this idea that you're trying to find workers who are far flung. So you don't necessarily want to travel to all 50 states looking for workers. You want them to come to you. So you want to create this convenience of getting a wide swat of workers. But then, of course, that also creates the need for you to sort of sift through who is going to be more better aligned to your corporation, to your mission, etc. So then the automated hiring systems are really, first and foremost, culling machines. Also, in the way that they were developed, they are cloning machines. 
So that was actually one of the taglines that we found when they were first marketed, which is clone your best worker. So the idea that automated hiring systems can be diversification tools is actually kind of false. It's it's a misnomer, right? They really are in their uh, conception, in their inception, really tools for replicating the workplace that you already have. And therefore you're taking a wide pool of people and you're culling or sieving or sifting out the people who do not fit. So that's really what you're doing with automated hiring. As you can see, however, this of course can bring in problems, legal problems, having to do with lack of equal opportunity or even outright discrimination, outright unlawful discrimination. I want to go back to a couple things you said. One of them is, and we talked about this in the chat GPT episode, which is that AI is not neutral. It is not objective. It is subjective according to the data that is fed into it and based off of what it is told to prioritize, right? right? So for automatic hiring, it's not an employer saying, hey, AI, give me the best resumes. It's an employer saying, I want resumes that fit this profile. Exactly. Right. So I think there is this notion in our society and, you know, scholars like Danielle Citron have identified this notion or this sort of like preconception of automation bias. And it's really the idea that when something is automated or when something is, you know, coming from AI technologies, we tend to think that somehow it is neutral, somehow it is fair, somehow it is objective. And other scholars have really delved into exactly showing how it is not objective. So scholars like Kate Crawford, uh, scholars like Julie Cohen, scholars like Anupam Chander have really shown how AI technologies really do not operate in an objective way. Because if you think about it, AI technologies are tools, but the way you deploy the tool is what is going to impact the result, what will dictate the result. So, you know, for example, as you mentioned, when an automated hiring system is being deployed, it's not a blank slate, right? That system still has to be trained. And the way that system will function will depend largely on how it was trained. And oftentimes what employers do when they train those systems is to say, okay, here are people who we consider top performers in our corporation, in our organization. But what sometimes gets sort of missed or buried is that this conception of who is a top performer is laden with bias, historical bias. Because think about it, if you have an organization where women have traditionally been excluded, where minorities have traditionally been excluded, then of course your top performers will predominantly be male and will predominantly probably be white because that's who you have the majority of. So if you then take that subgroup of top performers who already have been sort of like predetermined or preordained and you train your automated hiring system with that, it is quote unquote going to clone your best worker and that is going to replicate the historical bias you have in your organization. So that's very important to understand. 
that the AI will look at all those resumes or profiles and be like, oh, your best workers are majority white. Exactly. They're majority male. Most of them come from these three schools. Exactly. And therefore, it will prioritize those same factors. Right. It will take those characteristics as basically um, variables right. and look for those same variables in whatever new resumes come in, right? And and we've seen this play out, right? So, you know, Amazon actually made headlines, I believe it was uh, uh, 2018, because it had created an automated hiring system for actually really benevolent reasons. It was trying to increase the diversity of its workforce, But what happened was Amazon ended up having to scrap that system because it found out that that system was actually downgrading women's resumes. But why? Because the resumes it had trained those systems on were not women's resumes. So when the system now saw resumes that had women's schools or women's organization, it downgraded those in favor of resumes that had variables that matched the training set or the training data it had received. So it upgraded men's resumes that had the preferred schools, you know, preferred organizations, et cetera. And so in that way, right, bias gets replicated, even if inadvertently. And I I appreciate one example you also note, which is that the AI even allows bias in targeting ads, right? Right. Like what we've been talking about is, and we all have had this experience where you go online and whether you're applying for a job or you're RSVPing for something and you're filling in all these online forms, right? You're, you're giving all of your information over, not as like, here's my word doc resume, but you're filling in all of these automated boxes. But Facebook, we allows you to target ads. Right. So if an employer has a job ad, they want to advertise on Facebook, they can go in and say, I want predominantly people who are between the ages of 25 and 40. Right. So according to Facebook, they no longer allow that. Right. And that was actually because of a lawsuit um, that had, you know, alleged that they were doing that. And the settlement for that lawsuit was that Facebook then averred that they had concluded that program, that they would no longer allow that. But according to the complaint, the allegations were that Facebook had allowed corporations to target ads based on not just age, right? So it had the, the allegations were that was that Facebook was targeting ads to people who were under 40, right? In violation of the Age Discrimination Act, uh, but they they had also been targeting people who were seen to be male or you know male presenting as per their profile. But there was there were even other categories that could have been excluded also. So it wasn't just even targeting; it was also who was being excluded. So some housing uh, ads were excluding people who were in wheelchairs, uh, people who had children, people who spoke Spanish all these sorts of things. So those were all the allegations that had come out of that uh, case. And according to Facebook, they've now discontinued that. And we'll see, you know, I'm, I do know that there are plaintiffs, uh, lawyers who are certainly monitoring um, those sorts of things to continue to check that, you know, 
we don't have that kind of market who called it um, algorithmic Jim Crow uh, is happening. Yeah. Because when you do, I mean, not just job ads, when you have general ads on Facebook or want to boost content, it's amazing how specific you can target the audience, right? This is used come election time too. You target specific zip codes, specific political profiles. Um, And so if you can do that with an election ad, it seems only makes sense that you can do that with a job ad. Right. I think even more insidious, you know, speaking of zip codes, I think even more insidious is, is, is for us to be concerned about sort of how machine learning algorithms work in ways that may not actually be explicitly discriminatory, right? So for example, the use of zip codes in automated hiring is something that facially seems non-discriminatory, right? It's not a forbidden characteristic. It's not race. It's not, you know, sex. It's not national origin. But, right, given the history of housing segregation in the United States, zip codes actually can be highly correlated with race such that you can think of them as proxy variables for, you know, a forbidden characteristic, which is race. So, you know, um, scholars like Andrew Selps, Solon Barakas has, have written about this feature of machine learning, which is that machine learning programs can actually pick up on basically variables that are not specified, right, in the original programming, but which actually can be proxy variables and use that in sorting out, you know, new uh, results. And then, and, and in, in such a way, they can actually have a negative impact on certain groups of people. Uh, so I do think we want to be sort of attuned to that when it comes to automated hiring. An example I use in the book is an audit that happened for an automated hiring program where the audit found that the two sort of most important variables for selecting candidates was that the person was named Jared and that the person had done high school lacrosse. They had participated in high school lacrosse, right? Which are two things that like in theory, an employer doesn't care about, but that's what the AI model picked up. That's what the AI model picked up. And you might ask yourself, well, why is the AI model picking this up? And why should we care? Right? Like that's, you know, it sounds innocuous, right? It's not, they're not saying women can't work here. They're not saying, you know, um, tennis players or football players right. can't work, here. but they are <laughs> privileging, you know, right. people who did high school across. So obviously I investigated this further. And what I realized was that when you go to the social security administration website, which actually has the prevalence of names and their associations or, you know, who has those names, you'll find that Jared is 90 beyond 90% going to be a white male, right? So that was actually a way for the, for the machine to basically pick white males. And then you're like, okay, but what about high school across? What does that have to do with anything? Well, when you look at high school across further, High school lacrosse is not offered at every high school. If you look at the schools who are more likely to offer high school lacrosse, there are schools located in affluent neighborhoods because it's an expensive sport. 
the equipment is expensive. So the school has to be sort of well-resourced to be able to have that as an offering. So what you find then is that high school lacrosse is actually another proxy variable for wealth, uh, which in turn in the United States is a proxy variable for race. You know, so you're just reinforcing, you're reinforcing race, race and gender and gender. So, so basically this automated hiring system is set up to privilege white males who are of a higher socioeconomic status. And, and that, so that's what's happening there. Yeah. And so I, with so many of these companies, right, they, you get it. They're getting thousands of applications for a job. They have to figure out some way to call, you know, 2000 applicants down to five. Sure. And this is where the like automated rejection comes from. The AI model may not be picking your final candidate, but it's getting rid of 98% of all the other applicants. Exactly. And it is doing it based off of what you told it to prioritize. Right. And right. the question is, are there any regulations as right. to how employers train these automated hiring models? Yes. Um, I, I love that you asked that question. And, you know, this is why I love being a lawyer because yes, I'm a sociologist, you know, I, I have training as a sociologist, but I think the law part of me is perhaps stronger because I'm always like, there ought to be a law, <laughs> right? Like there ought to be a solution. There ought to be regulations. Currently on a federal level, there is no law that outlines exactly how automated hiring systems are to be trained or programmed. I, I believe that Title VII obviously continues to apply. You know, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of certain, you know, protected categories for hiring. I believe that obviously continues to apply for automated hiring, but we still need to set out what that looks like specifically for automated hiring. Because I, I you know, right now, uh, employers are kind of in the dark. Everybody wants to job on the AI technologies bandwagon. Um, people feel like, oh, we'll be left behind if we don't make use of these technologies, which yes, do have efficacy if used properly, but we do need regulations for how to manage them. So to that effect, you know, in my book, I offer, you know, several proposals for how the law can intervene for this socio-technical phenomenon of automated hiring systems. So for one, I recommend audits, mandated audits of automated hiring systems when being used by corporations. But the audits actually would start in the forefront. So I, I, I recommend both, both ex, anti and ex post audits. So audits before they're deployed and then audits after they're deployed and continued audits. Um, I also recommend a some sort of certification system that I call the Fair Automated Hiring Mark um, that could be issued by a third-party agency that um, that mark could then be affixed um, for, to any automated hiring system to show that this system has actually undergone some auditing to show that it is returning uh, results that are non-discriminatory. And this is, I think, you know, a consumer issue as well as a civil rights issue. It's a consumer issue because employers are buying the systems with the sort of claims and really uh, belief 
that they are working non, in a non-discriminatory way, right? They're, they're believing the adver- advertisements of the vendors, but there's not really any way to verify any of those claims. And the audits will be a way to start to verify those claims and, and a way for um, employers to be sort of more informed as they choose which automated hiring system to buy and to consume as consumers. It's all obviously a civil rights issue for, you know, would-be employees or applicants because for them, you know, when they see that mark, they can feel sort of like emboldened to say, oh, I want to apply for that um, job because I feel like I will be treated fairly there. I feel like, you know, my application will actually get equal opportunity there. So I think that first and foremost is a way to go. Um, I also would advocate for some sort of change in our legal framework. So currently under Title VII, we really have only two causes of action, which is disparate treatment and disparate impact. And disparate impact has been really diluted um, through several you know, judicial holdings. And I think we need maybe a third cause of action, which I am terming discrimination per se, that would allow um, for direct action when applicants are applying through automated hiring systems and they notice something that they feel is so egregious that they suspect that this is actually going to have a negative impact on a protected group, they can then challenge that system and bring the lawsuit on the discrimination per se uh, cause of action. And, th- and that would actually trigger burden shifting onto the employer to provide evidence that that automated hiring system is non-discriminatory. So in that that way... Just to give an example, is that thinking like the Jared high school lacrosse example? Like Exactly. Neither of those are classes, you know, Jared is not race, it's not gender, it's a name. But if you wanted to go in and say, but effectively this is race discrimination, this is gender discrimination. Exactly. Then that would put the burden on the employer to do the audit and show, oh, even though we're privileging high school lacrosse, it doesn't, you know, have an impact on rates, or it doesn't have an impact on gender. Um, another one, you know, another example to that effect, you know, when I was doing research, empirical research with my uh, former co-author, we, I, I actually applied for a job through a retail company through an online program, and what I found was that even though I was applying for a part-time job. I could not complete the application until I put that I had unlimited availability, right? Yeah. So for me, that's discrimination per se. I feel that in encountering such a program, I should be able to bring a lawsuit and say, I think this is discrimination per se, because essentially you are calling out people who have other responsibilities. Other jobs. Yeah. You want people who can work overtime and can be part-time, but effectively be full-time. Exactly. But you're also going to not even allow people like, yeah. you know, say moms that have, you know, child care obligation, people that have, you know, elder care giving obligations. You're effectively not even going to allow them to apply. Which will have a gender discrimination impact exactly. as well. So that's so for me, that's something that could should trigger a discrimination per se claim. And then the onus would be on the employer to provide audit results showing, okay, it doesn't. And if they can't show that, 
then obviously that you have a problem. Um, and I, and I really think it's, you know, to accomplish the things that I'm setting out, right. The audit, the discrimination per, per se claim, we also need to have mandates about record retention and record retention by design. It has to actually be built into the design of the automated hiring system that it is keeping records of not just who applied successfully, but who attempted to apply and couldn't complete the application for whatever reason. Right. So that it can be audited. You can can go back and check. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Because just think about the scenario that I just mentioned, right. Where I tried to apply and I couldn't even complete the application. Right. All the people that did that, there's no record of that. Right. Then it just looks like a majority of men apply. Like, what can I tell you? Men preferred this job description. Exactly. So that's a very sneaky way, obviously, to enact discrimination, especially gender discrimination. So I think record keeping mandates would take care of that because then that would allow that system to be continually audited. Um, And for people who might quibble and say, well, wouldn't you then be asking the applicant to give up demographic information that is sensitive? I would actually say this is nothing new. In the past, we used to have something called a tear off sheet when applying to jobs. So in the past, when you had paper applications, right, this is how it would work. You would have a paper application on the top sheet of that paper application, you would put in all your demographic information, including your race, your gender, et cetera. And then that top would be torn off before your application would be handed to the decision maker. So I'm saying with automated hiring system, you can have the same thing in an even better way where like there's no possibility of losing that torn off sheet, right? Because it's all electronically saved. And what can happen is you basically embargo that first information. You embargo the demographic information and it does not become available until after the employment decision has been made. So in such a way, you still have that information to be able to do the audits at any time, really. You're listening to Broken Law, brought to you by the American Constitution Society. If you're enjoying Broken Law, consider becoming a member of ACS today. You do not need to be a lawyer to be a member. As we discuss so often on this podcast, our laws and legal systems impact all of us. By supporting ACS, you support Broken Law, our work to diversify the federal bench, and our advocacy for Supreme Court reform. You also become a member of our nationwide network. Learn more about ACS by visiting our website at acslaw.org. And now back to the conversation. I want to talk a little bit about you've you've somehow made it through that jungle of AI hiring and you have you now have the job. Right. And right. now the question is you know again you talk about how like Ford surveilled its workers by having humans walk across the assembly floor and like documenting the production of workers. Mm-hmm. Now all of that is digitized. Right. Talk to me about AI surveillance of workers. What does that look like? Right. So, you know, like we mentioned before, AI surveillance is not new, um, but it is getting more and more sophisticated. Right. So surveillance of workers is not new. AI surveillance is newish, but still not very new. But 
not to the extent that we see now. It's it's actually quite alarming, the extent that we see now. So, you know, before you could think about surveillance of workers means, you know, you have cameras in the workplace, you're clocking in, you're clocking out. Maybe when you sign on online, your employer knows. But now you have intense surveillance to the point where you have programs that are taking a screenshot of your computer screen at whatever interval your employer wants. It could be every five seconds. It could be every 10 seconds such that they know what you are looking at at any really minute. And you can have surveillance that is also tied to your person. So what does that look like? Amazon actually has a patent on a bracelet that you would wear in the workplace that could track all your movements and that would even administer what they're calling haptic feedback, a vibration um, on your wrists, um, I guess, to reorient you back to work. This sounds a little bit like a shock collar to me. I was going to say, this sounds terrifying. (laughs) Yes. Um, but, but, you know, even now we have corporations that actually already have RFID chips that are installed under the skin for workers. So, um, workers in Sweden. And I'm assuming it's a condition of employment. If you won't agree to this, you don't get the job. So that, I think that is an interesting way to put it, right? Because this, this debate of, oh, well, isn't all worker surveillance voluntary, right? Because you're agreeing to work for the right. company. Can't workers just say no? Can they just say, no, I don't want to be surveilled? Can they just say, no, I, you know, I don't want you taking photos of my computer screen. I don't want you logging my keyboard strokes. I don't want you reading my emails. Technically, yes. But the reality is this, we have employment at will in the United States. So, so really the power a lot of it is on the balance to the employer, right? So because of this power asymmetry where the worker can be fired for whatever reason. Including I refuse to right. be shot collar. <laughs> exactly. Including I refuse to be tagged like an animal, yeah. right? Then really what, where is that voluntary consent, right? The voluntary consent seems a little fictive. Is there a mandatory disclosure requirement? Because I also feel like part of the question is workers don't know which of these programs are being employed. Right. So most states do not have. So first of all, there is no federal mandatory disclosure whatsoever. There's really no federal law that outlines or puts any kind of limits on worker surveillance. Um, And you can read more about this, um, you know, in the book and also in an article that I wrote with Kate Crawford and Jason Schultz called limitless worker surveillance. And we called it that because there really is no limit (laughs) to worker surveillance in the United States on a federal level. So there is no mandated disclosure for employees. In fact, most employees do not even know the extent to which they are monitored, the extent to which they are surveilled. They don't know that all their emails can be read. Um, they don't know that employees can actually be monitored on social media, which a lot of corporations do do. So a lot of corporations monitor their employees on LinkedIn to see when they're job searching. They monitor their employees on social media to see if they're posting anything they um, deem um, objectionable. 
And there's just no mandatory disclosure for that on a federal level. Now, some states are trying to put some guidelines on this, right? So California is perhaps the most forward-looking state when it comes to that, requiring um, only reasonable surveillance or reasonable monitoring, and also requiring disclosure to employees. But yes, I think it is important for employees to understand that in most states, they don't actually know the extent to which that they are being monitored. So one of the other questions to me, especially post-COVID, when there are so many remote workers, is worker privacy. Because if you've worked in an office, right, I feel like so many of us know, like, as soon as you walk into an office, your expectation of privacy plummets. Right. Right. The notion is, like, you are on employer territory. Right, it is right. their their game. But when you're working remotely, you're in your own home. Right. What is your expectation of privacy? Like you're working on an employer provided computer, but like right now you're seeing, you know, my own wall, my own decor, like where's the balance there? So, yeah. So in the past, you know, several court rulings have held that workers do not have any reasonable expectation of privacy, right? Um, Except of course, if you are a governmental employee, right? Because then the fourth amendment kicks in. So that's a kind of interesting that, you know, (laughs) the fourth amendment kind of saves you if you are a government employee, because then, um, you know, any search would then be government action. But if you're not a government employee, there is no expectation of privacy um, in the workplace, but you raise an interesting, you know, question, which is that with the rise of the work from home movement, where is your workplace? Your workplace is now everywhere and anywhere, including your home. So one thing I like to say is basically we're all living at work now, right? We're not <laughs> working from home. We're living at work. <laughs> and I, I say that because it's a good way to remind people that, you know, anytime you're working, you don't have that expectation of privacy. Once you start working, you're on your, you know, government mandated, uh, I'm sorry, you're, you're on your employer. Yeah. Yeah. If you're on your employer issued laptop, you're on, you're on your employer issued phone, you're not at home, right? You are in your workplace and therefore you cannot expect to keep anything private for that. Um, so I do think it is very important for employees to be cognizant of that. I do think we we want to, as a society, think about if we are going to have, um, you know, extensive working from home arrangements, how do we ensure that employees are still sort of given the human dignity of being able to be at home, right? You still want to feel like you're at home and not that you're at work all the time because, I think if we have that, you're you're really going to erode personhood um, to the extent that, you know, you cease to become a human and you're just really just a worker bee. Well, and and there's so much research that if you know you're being surveilled, Mm -hmm. you change your behavior. Right. It changes your behavior. And there's also psychological effects of surveillance, um, negative psychological effects of surveillance. So people who are overly surveilled, um, experience emotional distress. They are depressed. Um, they lack uh, innovation. They lack creativity. So th- this is a problem, um, you know, on a societal level. 
and something that I think will need to be addressed in terms of creating clear guidelines for uh, employers in terms of how far they can surveil workers, especially when the worker is working at home. It feels like that that movie line where it's like, do you ever feel like you're being watched? Right. And it just gives you that creepy feeling. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The, you touch upon so many really just great points in the book. And so I want to encourage people more than anything to read the book. But the last point I wanted to touch on real quick that you know is workers generate data. Right. That is collected and analyzed by employers that is useful to employers. It is valuable to employers. Who owns that data? And this is an issue more and more because data has value. It can be sold to companies, right? right? It can. And so it, you are always generating data, but it could never be collected and sold the way that it can be today. And you talk about this, who owns the data that you generate as a worker? So that's such a great question. In the book, um, I refer to this issue as um, the issue of captured capital. So this is a term that I came up with to really sort of highlight that, you know, workers are generating so much data in the workplace and that that data includes um, information that's actually helpful to employers in terms of thinking about how to do the job tasks and even also how to automate those jobs. So this data is capital first and foremost, because it is useful. Um, it's captured because, you know, employer employees like don't necessarily have a say in how, what is captured and what is, um, you know, um, swept up and sold and how it's used. Um, so the issue of captured capital, I think is going to continue to have resonance as we start developing automation in the workplace, right? Because when you use that data, to then automate the job that that employee was doing, do you owe something to the employee that is now out of work? I would say yes. I would say their capital, right? Their data was used to create that automation. Therefore, something is owed to that worker. So, you know, a lot of people have advocated for things like the um, universal basic income when it comes to thinking about future automation of the workplace and um, the idea that, you know, we will have displaced workers in the future. And, you know, there's been a lot of like sort of legal argument as to what would be the basis for this income. Like, and I'm saying the legal basis is that this is old income. Like the employee generated this capital and therefore deserves some sort of kickback on it. Um, so I, I do think going forward, we will have to think about legal regimes for ensuring that workers are being paid commensurate with the information that they're being, they're generating, right? That that information is part of the labor, all right, that they're giving up, that it's not just about selling time for money, but also the information that is being gleaned from their work. I want to connect this real briefly to the current news cycle because it just resonates so much of this is what writers and actors are currently striking for is this concern that their current catalog will be used 
to generate future content right. and they'll receive no payment for it. Exactly. So yes, I think, you know, workers um, anywhere, but especially workers who work in creative industries should be particularly worried about this issue of captured capital, right? Because think about what technology can do now. Um, a few years ago, we saw Tupac Shakur perform a concert, but he's been long dead. How did he do this? It was his hologram, right? His digital image was used as part of this concert. So just think about how even more advanced technology is now such that we could have actors acting in movies that they were not even physically present present for in terms of its creation, right? And what does that mean? We've heard of writers. You know, there was actually a recent um, letter that went out with writers like Margaret Atwood and others basically decrying the fact that ChatGPT was hoovering up many of their works and basically using that as part of its output. And yes, the idea that you could hoover up enough of Margaret Artwood's oeuvre, right? Her um, extensive collection of works and basically then have ChatGPT write novels in her voice and in her manner um, that could sell equally the same. And then she would be non-compensated for that. Uh, so I do think, you know, this idea of captured capital is especially resonant for people working in creative industries. And it feels like the, the lesson to take away from thinking of the Hollywood strike is that any union negotiation, no matter what the job field is, is going to have to include a discussion about AI. Right. For sure. And I talk about that in the book. I talk about the fact that I think unions have a large role to play in how AI can be deployed in the workplace. Yes, I advocate for several agencies to get involved. Um, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission can be involved in terms of regulating how automated hiring systems are created and deployed. Um, the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, can also be involved in, in how automated hiring systems are created, and especially the claims attached to them to make sure they're not uh, deceptive or unfair or causing un unfair competition. But ultimately, unions, I think, have a large power in saying, in terms of what variables, for example, can AI automated uh, systems use when choosing workers, right? Unions can have a large say in saying, okay, this is the sort of data you can collect for, from our members or not. Unions also have a large say in saying, if you collect this data and use it for automation in the future, then, you know, our members you need get, to get, you get some, to pay us. Right. You know, our members need to get some sort of royalties, yeah. right? As a kickback for that. So I do think unions have such a, they have such a, a, an outsized and important role to play in how AI affects workers. Especially in the absence of federal regulation. Exactly. And as we noted before we started recording, especially in privacy, they, we're always, always playing catch up. The law is never up to date on technology. It's always trying to respond to the last generation of tech, right. let alone what's coming. And so it really means that workers are going to have to to really argue for themselves. They're, they're going to have to be the ones 
talking to employers about this, which is not the proper power dynamic, but again, it's where unions can come in. Um, I have kept you over. I just want to give you one last uh, opportunity. We will say again, the book is called The Quantified Worker. Everybody should go pick it up. It is now available. We will link to it. But for listeners who might want to take action, is there anything that you recommend folks do? Right. Um, so for listeners who want to take action, if, if you are a worker, um, you know, and you want to know what surveillance your employer has, for example, I would, I would say, ask them outright, talk to your HR uh, person and say, oh, how are we being surveilled? Um, take it upon yourself to get, gather that information so you can better protect yourself, you know, should anything come up. Um, also, if you're a job applicant, and you're applying for jobs and you come across automated hiring systems, right? Be aware and be sort of like savvy in noting problems that you encounter. If something looks strange to you, if something looks like it seems like it could be unfair, note it down. And you can contact actually the corporation directly and say, hey, I try to apply and I encountered this. Because sometimes, to be honest, corporations don't even know some of the issues that the automated hiring systems have. And then if that fails, you can contact a plaintiff's attorney and say, hey, this is something that I discovered. There are several law firms who would take that case and who would want to investigate further. So that's just one way to take action now. Um, further is to write to your um, you know, uh, lawmakers, right? And say, Hey, I want you to take action. I want you to be at the forefront of making sure that there are regulations in place for how to manage AI and how it's going to affect me as a worker in the workplace. Um, I know there, there are several lawmakers. Senator Chuck Schumer is one of them. Senator Bernie Sanders, um, Senator Klobuchar, who are very interested and invested in these issues and are working on trying to put legislation together. So those are all people you can contact, but just really raising, continuing to raise awareness about these issues, um, both at the federal level, local level, and even just directly to your employer, I think um, can do a lot. Yeah. Inform yourself, make sure that you know mm-hmm. some of this, you know, the terminology, you know, what's possible. Uh, even if it makes you want to go stick your head under a pillow, like <laughs> sometimes that's for me. Anyways, thank you so much for joining me for this episode. Uh, we will link to the book, The Quantified Worker, and everyone should go pick it up today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you again to Professor Ajunwa for joining me for this conversation. We're including a link to our book club summer reading list in the show notes. And I'll note that we previously hosted Professor Steve Vladek to discuss his new book, The Shadow Docket, also included on the reading list. That was episode 102, and it's available wherever you are listening to this episode. Summer is a great time to catch up on all your missed episodes. So take a minute to browse our complete episode library. And make sure to follow us on social media at ACS Law and hashtag Broken Law Podcast. Together, we'll speak truth to power about the law, whose interests it really serves, and whose it does not. Mm-hmm.